Hey y'all, Jeremy here. This is a quick welcome to the show and a message from the future where I am editing this episode. A few things we want you to know today. Firstly, this episode is being recorded across distance, so please be a little patient with us because of, you know, everything. We're recording in different locations. That means the audio is not always at the quality we want. That means you can hear pets or children throughout. And you know what? We're going to pretend like it's charming. A few other pieces of news. If you haven't, please go check out my other podcast. It's a short eight-episode series that I co-hosted with Jordan and Taylor Mason called Virtually Church. It's an exploration in the differences and values between the church and technology. And we're trying to help Christians, Christian thinkers, and leaders be wise about their use of technology during this pandemic crisis and in general. Also, David's new book is coming out, so, this month. So, uh, well, hope you'll go ahead and pre-order a copy of After Evangelicalism, David's exploration of the evangelical tradition how it came about, where it went wrong, and where we go next. So, from the future, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode, and we look forward to hearing from you. You can always leave a five-star review on your listening platform of choice. Leave us a, a good review there. Shoot us a comment on Facebook. You can find David at davidpgushy.com and myself at revjeremyhall.com. If you want to interact with our various content, and we'd love to hear from you. It's always true, and we're always glad you're here. Thank you. Let's get this going. Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and you're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. Kingdom Ethics is a production of Mercy University's Center for Theology and Public Life. And with me today, as always, is Dr. Reverend... Can we, can we put anything else on there right now? Do you have any more prefixes, or do we have to go suffixes? Uh, let's not. Let's, let's let's just be David and Jeremy. All right, fine. Whatever. Fine. So, Jeremy and David. Nice and boring. So, I've got David with me, as ever, and uh, it's 2020 still. I, I wish it wouldn't be anymore, but <laughs> it is. Um, earlier today, I had the opportunity, along with uh, my senior pastor, to be interviewed by a local paper about our church and what it's like living in purple church and jim said well i'm dreading the next three months and i'm i'm right there with him we are quite aggressively split as a country right now on just about everything it's an interesting time to be engaged in american politics and this past week um david you got yourself uh, properly involved in some politics, uh, working with Doug Paget and his friends on the Vote Common Good online source. If you if you haven't kept up with them, Paget's uh, been doing a radio show slash podcast slash all sorts of events thing called Vote Common Good, where he's trying to help Christians think about uh, the common good and how public theology should affect the way we think about our politics and the way we interact in society. It's 
definitely worth taking a look at. A lot of interesting minds in that crew, uh, including this past week, you, David, and it's pretty explicitly political. So are are you officially a political pundit now or something like um, that? You know, Jeremy, what I would say is that I, I mean, I have uh, found myself naturally gravitating uh, to the Democratic Party with, you know, with hesitations ever since I began caring about politics. I discovered in my eighth grade yearbook <laughs> that somebody made fun of me because I supported that peanut farmer from Georgia. <laughs> Um, and that was what they wrote in my yearbook. Remember how you used to take your yearbooks and like, you know, share them and you get people to sign them for people to sign them. And you kind of hope for the best. Well, this kid said, you're pretty good, Gushy, even though you supported that peanut farmer from Georgia. Took a political jab at you in your yearbook. (laughs) That was in my yearbook. That was in 1976. Um, I mean, that was 44 years ago. Uh, and so my, you know, there are certain, I didn't know much, but I, I leaned that way, even though my family was more Republican. And, but as a Christian ethicist, I I followed the example of most of my teachers in trying to stay out of explicitly partisan involvement and not to say anything, if I could help it, about candidates during election years. I was always about principles, right? Um, not about people or parties. Um. But anybody who's followed me at all knows that I am deeply, deeply, deeply opposed to Donald Trump. I was very clear about that from his first descending of his golden <laughs> escalator in 2015. And, and it has only deepened since then. Um, and so this year I have endorsed uh, the Democratic uh, ticket for uh, president. We'll do so publicly in some ways that I hope will be helpful for them. And and uh, because I've been a little more visible on Facebook about it, Vote Common Good approached me um, this summer and asked if uh, if I would uh, be involved with them. And um, so they have this thing called Electionary on their website, where they they bas- they basically been running worship services on their website. Mm-hmm. Um, They're very provide- interesting. Yeah, they Prayer, are. scripture, I- music, a preacher, yeah. and discussion. Yeah, and I provided the sermon. I guess that was just last week as mm-hmm. we're recording now, on Romans 13. You know, one thing you'll find interesting about this, uh, Jeremy, is that I did not script this sermon. I just preached it from looking at the text. Really? And Yeah, uh, I did not write that out. That was entirely uh, improv. That's some old school preaching. Old school preaching. And I wish I, I, I should do that more often because I'm a little dependent on my manuscript. Um, uh, that was kind of how I was trained to preach. But anyway, this was improv, and it'll be improv today, too. I want us to talk about Romans 13 together today. Yeah, it's an interesting passage, and it's one that we see wielded. Uh, it, it's one of those passages that people like to turn into a weapon and use against their opponents. And it is somehow extremely political. It's a very odd thing. For, for those who don't know, Romans is probably written by a dude named Paul. Uh, to the church that exists in Rome in the first century, which is a hard time and a hard place to be a church. And and the church naturally finds itself opposed to the Roman Empire uh, around civic and religious uh, existence. These are existential issues for the first 
uh, Christians. Who do we say is Lord? Is Jesus Lord or is Caesar Lord? You can't say both. And so the, the Roman authorities are particularly concerned about this group of insurrectionists that are going around saying there's a Caesar other than the one in the palace in Rome. And so Paul writes to these Christians, and he, in the 13th chapter of his letter, says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenues, then revenues. If respect, then respect. And if honor, then pay honor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to, to God. God. <laughs> um, I think a good place to start with this passage is is exactly where you started. Uh, Paul, writing to the church in Rome, uh, in a period not long after the Jews of Rome had been banished uh, from the city, by the emperor, mm-hmm. um, uh, Rome under pagan, grotesque uh, Caesars, one after the other, but especially Nero. Um, Rome that ultimately Rome that was responsible for executing Jesus. Rome that was responsible for executing Paul himself later, and a whole lot of other apostles and uh, Christian martyrs. Mm-hmm. How in the world does Paul, who knows all of this about Rome, and who is writing to people who know very well about the evil of Rome, write a chapter like Romans 13? Um, it's, it's, um, it has puzzled interpreters for a long time. I think it is always important when reading scripture to, to try to make as much sense of the context as possible. And, um, and I think here, what's weird is you would think that the context would yield a much more ambiguous or, um, kind of critical posture towards the state as Paul knew it. Um, but you get but this, did, but you get this. Yeah. And by the way, in interpreting the Bible, there's what is the context? And then there's, there's a, a recognition that we don't always fully know the context, like the moment in which somebody is writing. You know, if you wrote a letter in 2018 
in August and you wrote a letter in 2020 in August uh, and it was being read 2000 years later. Um, People might not understand that a letter written in 2018 in America is going to look very different than a letter written in 2020 in America because we're in the middle of a pandemic. Right. And when we look at the, uh, the dating that we have for the books of the Bible, usually the best we can do is decades. Yeah, a range, you know. We think this book was written in this 60-year period. Now, with Paul, it's closer than that. I mean, I, I, I've definitely seen in reading Bonhoeffer that you need to know what month or even what week stuff is written to make the most sense of it. Right. Um. So one way to suppose what Paul is doing here is, is he's writing in a period where things are relatively calm. Christians are not actively being persecuted in his orbit. That's true, I think. Uh, and he is aware of the providential benefits of Roman rule for Christian mission, such as relatively safe roads and, and um, hmm? ocean travel is safe. Ocean travel and the ability to, uh, especially if you're a Roman citizen like Paul, to to go around and have the state, the most powerful state in history, uh, to have your back and to protect you. Um, so possibly uh, the text reflects a kind of an over-optimism about the goodness of Rome, or at least the value and benefits of Rome. But it's also possible that the text is strategic. Is this uh, the idea the- that Paul's lying? Um. Well, I was, I wouldn't say he's lying, uh, but I would say, look, I'm such a conservative, Jeremy. Note that right now. Okay. Um, but I would say that it may be strategic in two ways. He may be trying to tamp down any anarchistic or rebellious sentiments on the part of the Christians of Rome. Um, even if they are well justified because he does not want the gospel as he understands it to be um, derailed by a political rebellion that brings a Roman crackdown. Mm-hmm. Um, it is also possible, I think, to see a kind of a reading between the line strategy here that um, what if Paul wants this letter to be overheard by the Roman authorities? I mean, there are people who are going to be reading this letter who have connections uh, or will have connections or in the Roman court. Um, what if, what if Paul is writing this thinking that possibly the, the, the uh, imperial power structure will actually read this letter. Mm-hmm. Then he wants to sound properly submissive and, and the, and one of the leaders of a cult that is not interested in rebelling against political authority. And one other little strategic piece is he may also be attempting to set some boundaries here um, as to what the state's proper role should be. And sometimes in church history, the reading between the lines setting of boundaries has has happened. Um, other times it has been read more woodenly as what it sounds like on its face, which is, Hey, if there's a power, if there's a person in power, God put them there. If there's a structure, God established it. Um, don't even think about rebelling. If they, you, you know, 
God's punishing you. If you get your head chopped off, you deserved it. Um, that let's call that the authoritarian reading of Romans 13. And it has done a great deal of damage in, in church history. And it's still, that's a very prominent reading of the text in our context. I think it's uh, American evangelicals more than any other group read the Bible in that very rigid framework that doesn't allow much engagement, doesn't allow much critical interaction with it, just simple reception. And that, that is, that's how the text was fed to me. I actually, so I was raised in a, a conservative evangelical context with strong uh, moral majority leftovers. Um, we were Republicans because we were Christians. Those, those things are the same. And so, but I, I was educated so well in the uh, conservative doctrine of the late 80s, early 90s, that I knew government was not my friend. I knew big government was bad. Uh, but then also I knew that the Bible was inerrant and must be taken literally which forced me into reading between the lines in Romans 13 because I couldn't, I knew that it was wrong for the government to do whatever it wanted, but I also knew that the Bible couldn't be wrong in saying that when the government does something that I should go along with it. And it forced me into a nuanced perspective. So what did you do like at that stage? How did you read Romans 13? I read Romans 13 initially, um, being frustrated with some of the things that uh, I became politically aware during uh, George W. Bush's time as president. And I was frustrated with things that he was doing, but I knew that God put Bush there and gave Bush that authority. Uh, So what I did with this text was I, I read that what Paul was saying was a government established by God would not terrorize good doers and so if you were if you are being persecuted for doing what's right then that government is not instituted by god i turned it into like a an if this then that analogy sort of thing um would you still read it that way now pretty similarly that it's like what you were saying that this might be a prescription that good government looks like this and that if it's not doing these things, if uh, if you are doing wrong and profiting and doing good and being persecuted, then this is not a legitimate government. Um, I think that that is progress in the reading of the text. Um, but, um, <clears throat> let's walk through it, and let me let me talk about a couple of things that I notice, and and feel free to jump in. Partly. It would be good if we were actually working from the Greek here because there are nuances, um, but I also don't want to drive away people who can't uh, play in the Greek. So let's just, just talk about a couple of translation things. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do some Bible study. Yeah. Um, I'm in the NRSV. What is the version that you're using? I've got um, the one I read from was the NIV. I figure that's the most popular. Um, the one open on my desk is new revised as well. Let's see if I can find an interesting one. V and I'll, I'll do the NRSV and that's interesting itself because the NRSV is more popular with mainline Protestants and the NIV is more popular with evangelicals. 
Um, and so we, we even have our uh, tribal Bibles, right? Right. Um, All right. I've grabbed a, a common English version. Okay. Have that out too. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll lead us through the NRSV. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. If you notice major differences or think that are notable, let me know. For there is no authority except from God. And those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Um, huh. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. The, with the common English, the common English version, if I understand it correctly, tries to not make choices when it translates, which if, if you've ever done any work in translation, you know that all translation is interpretation. You have to make choices. You can't do a one-to-one literal translation. And so CEV is often thought of as kind of wordy because they try to draw all of it out instead of making choices. And it says, obey the rulers who have authority over you because only God can give authority to anyone. And God puts these rulers in their place of power. Um, I like the first rendering. I don't like the second phrase as much. Yeah. Um, so, by the way, um, part of what goes wrong, one of the things I talk about in evangelical, in my book after evangelicalism is, you know, people quoting from their inerrant Bible in the translation that they prefer with the interpretation built into the translation right. and then the, the interpretation that they offer of the interpretation. Uh, it, it's interpretation all the way down. But anyway, here's my interpretation. Um, I think Paul is saying that governing authority itself comes from God. Um, that, that, that governance in human life flows from the top down through all sectors of life. So God, the creator, in a sense, is the governor of creation. And then God delegates uh, governing authority to us in Genesis 1 related to uh, proper stewardship or dominion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in, uh, in the state, uh, in structures of state authority, uh, Paul is arguing that this is a gift to humans because because the opposite is anarchy. Uh, it's the war of all against all that we need structures of authority. We need structures of authority in schools to determine what the rules will be. We need structures of authority in families, in churches. Not everybody is the pastor, right? Not everybody is the principal. Um, not everybody is the police officer, not everybody is the governor. We have these structures, and these structures are for human good. Um, in this, in this sense, as we look at somebody in authority, the idea is it's a delegated authority that comes from God, uh, for human, for human well-being. And when people, hey, say, what are all, oh, and if they bristle at that, I say, think of situations in which order has entirely broken down like in civil war or um situations of looting or anarchy uh those are are not fit for human habitation and order must be restored for people to have any kind of decent life right mm-hmm. um in a classroom you need somebody to be in in, in in authority so that you can actually have education happen um in, in every setting, you need authority structures so that good things can happen that are important for human life. What, what 
this passage was read to mean, though, is any particular person in authority, the principal, the father or the mother, the governor, the president, the emperor, or the pastor was placed there by God. So that would be Stalin, Hitler, Mao, right? Right. You so name- what you're what you're suggesting is that it's the the concept of the principle of governance that Paul's yes. talking about here, not the, the person who wields it. That's right. It's the okay. structure of the fact that we have governance rather than chaos. That that God is the author of that because we need it for human well-being. Okay. So, therefore, um, if we, verse 2, if we resist um, governing structures, if our posture is a posture of rebellion rather than submission just on principle, then Paul seems to be saying we are rebelling against the structures that, that God has created. Look at verse 2. In the new RSV, it says, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed. I bet you, you must have a translation in front of you that says, whoever resists the authorities resists who God has appointed. Mm-hmm. I, the NIV uses the word rebels, which in my ear is much stronger than resist. Yeah. In my mind, yeah. to resist is to protest and to rebel is to take up arms. That's true. Or to try to bring down or destroy right. the authority that exists. So you can see how easily, uh, uh, you know, that translation or that interpretation um, could be used by absolutist monarchs and dictators and rulers of all types. If you rebel against me, you are rebelling against God. And when I punish you with the sword, you will have deserved it. Mm-hmm. That plays into sort of the divine right of kings. It did. It was a key supporter for the divine right of kings. Um, You know, 15th century, the Pope says to Portugal and Spain, have at it. You take this part of the world, you take that part of the world, and, and, and God has authorized you to do that. So then when the colonizers end up in Africa and Latin America and stuff, and maybe the indigenous populations are, don't want to be enslaved or murdered, and they rebel, then... Voila, Romans 13, you're rebelling against what God has instituted. Mm-hmm. And, you, and we you have are, the power of the sword against you. Yep, and, and as you die, uh, you die justly, right? Um, uh, Hitler, I don't know that Hitler ever quoted Romans 13, but he certainly operated that way and had plenty of churchmen who did quote it on his behalf. Mm-hmm. Um, so Romans 13, 1 and 2 is very dangerous just on its face for the license it can grant to absolutists of all types. Um, it's the father who beats a child and says, if you resist or rebel, uh, you're resisting God. Right? It's the pastor who abuses a congregation or congregant and says, if you resist or rebel, you're resisting God. This is uh very dangerous on its face. So it is our responsibility to interpret it in a way that does not provide absolute authoritarian power to anybody. And, and I actually think that verse three and four help when Paul says rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. That, that sounds like a factual claim. And sometimes it's actually true, but sometimes it's not true. Sometimes rulers are a terror to a bat to good conduct and not to bad corrupt rulers reward the 
vicious and punish the innocent. In such cases, and this gets back to more where you were, in such cases, rulers are subverting what they were created to be about. Right. Um, and verse 4 also helps. 4a, it is God's servant for your good. Sometimes translated, he is God's servant for your good. If you're talking about individuals. Mm-hmm. Same thing. The police officer is there. The judge is there. The governor is there for the good of the people that they are serving. The, the parent the teacher, the principal, the police officer, whoever's in authority, the pastor. If if they are not doing good for A, it is God's servant for your good. If they are not advancing the good of those they are serving, they are subverting their mandate. Calvin saw this, and um, it helped him to come to a place of saying that regimes that fundamentally subvert what they are called to do um, can evoke a rebellion that is justifiable. Right. Uh, Luther never got to that, but Calvin did, which is one reason why Calvinism has produced more, more political rebellions than Lutheran Lutheranism has. Mm -hmm. Calvin and Zwingli both got themselves into those sorts of spaces during their ministry. Yeah, that's right. So, um, so what this says to those on the bottom, those on the underside of authority is at least a, a, a slender thread of grounds for resistance. Um, hey, police officer, you arrested me even though I did nothing wrong. That's wrong. And I, and I am going to use whatever appropriate means I have to resist your injustice, right? Same with governors or presidents or whoever it might be. Um, by the way, every so often you still see conservative white Christians, mainly black Christians rarely do this because they know all about the abuse of state authority. Right. Right. But you see conservative white Christians still periodically say, oh, if you're criticizing, say, Donald Trump, you're violating Romans 13. Well, that's not true. Or if you're if you say that this or that policy of this president is wrong. And uh, you're trying to resist it. That is even get it overturned for a better policy. You're violating Romans 13. By the way, conservative white Christians almost never say that when the president is a Democrat. Hmm. They only say it when the president is a Republican. Um, which shows you that there's something wrong with that interpretation. Right. Um, so anyway, the passage goes on to say um, authorities exist. For the good of people, parentheses, as long as they are doing their role properly, um, you should respect their power. You should voluntarily subject yourself to the um, to their rule because not just because you're afraid of them, but also because you realize in good conscience that they are doing good for the whole. So when your taxes are due in verse six. Um, and they are paying the salaries of trash collectors and sewer monitors and uh, voting of election officials and uh, you know public health officers and police officers and judges and parole officers. And I like to be concrete here to think about everything the government does. Um, we do we should be paying those taxes in good conscience out of gratitude. 
that the government structures that exist are and the people who 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 we are paying are advancing the common good if they're not then we should be holding them accountable here's a more democratic way of thinking about it we should be holding them accountable getting new officials getting new public servants who will do a better job um by the way one thing i said in that vote common good uh feature is one of the things that is assumed here is that government officials or all authorities will be acting for the good. And if they're not, then it might be time for somebody different in that role. And God might put somebody different in that role or, or the voters might, or that might even amount to the same thing. The other thing that I think is assumed is the basic competence of the authorities in executing their responsibilities. So if you have a basically incompetent government that uh, takes, that spends more money than it has, uh, or that doesn't know how to keep the water clean or doesn't bother to do it or, 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 um, doesn't know how to conduct a, uh, uh, a competent, a competent foreign policy, then you have a problem of a different type. You have a government that is subverting its responsibilities simply through lack of competence. Sometimes that's all it is. Other times it's more evil than that. It's it's evil that is making the government go wrong, not just incompetence. So if stupidity you have, or malice. Right. If you have both uh, stupidity and malice, then you're in real trouble. Um, one or the other, you're also in trouble. And um, so one of the things I would say about this passage is um, that that Romans 13 tends to have us focus on the punitive and coercive power of the state. Verse 4, the authority does not bear the sword in vain, the executing of wrath. So so uh, Luther especially emphasized the role of the state as executioner of criminals, as military power, as police power. And it it dovetails nicely with a really pessimistic view of human nature Mm -hmm. that human beings are rebels, reprobates who have to be coerced not to do evil. That is until they have met the grace of God in Christ and have become Christians, at which point they may not even need any, any such structures. Luther actually argued that the sermon on the Mount, for example, is for free people set free by Christ who don't necessarily need to be told negatively what they're not allowed to do or threatened anymore because they are transformed Christians. But it's interesting to see Luther yeah. versus Calvin on this when you think about their political and historic contexts that both of them sort of in the the well they're both reformation leaders coming from slightly different places that Luther is taken in and protected by his home state uh when the Catholic world wants Luther gone. It's the Holy Roman Empire of Germany that protects him. He's put in a castle where they can't get to him. And that becomes the state religion over there. And then with the Calvin experience, Calvin ends up fleeing from his state. And so they, they come to these different interpretive ends based on their lived experience along with the text. But then Calvin ends up setting up a theocracy in, in uh, Geneva, 
Um, that doesn't go well either. And that doesn't go well either, right? <laughs> um, the Anabaptists, um, the Anabaptists were more impressed by the dangers of governing authority. And, and I remember being taught by Glenn Stassen to always read Romans 13 next to Revelation 13, which talks about the beast. In Revelation, the Roman state is a beast. It's demonic. It's slaying the saints. Um, in, in Romans 13, you don't get any language of beast or demonic. It's, um, God's servant to do you good. So if you put those two together, it's a really good example of how the Bible contains multiple, multiple voices on various issues, not just one voice. And for different times. Right. And, and, you know, we always need to be, uh, if we're serious about the Bible, we need to be scanning the text always, uh, backwards and forwards, forwards and backwards, all read through Jesus. By the way, if we read the text through Jesus, we will always remember that it was the state that executed Jesus. It was the Roman governor in a miscarriage of justice, uh, that executed Jesus. Um, and those passion narratives tell us with the connivance of certain of the Jewish religious authorities. So the, so God used the miscarriage of justice, the most innocent man of all executed by the state, um, in a awful sham trial, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so, you know, if you take that seriously, you're never going to be sanguine about the all powerful state that never does wrong. It's right. Just an, an atrocious reading of Romans 13. So how do we get to a, a more nuanced ethic of power and government? Um, one thing I, I think it helps to remember is that, I mean, the contextual difference between, you might say, a theology of democracy and a theology of Romans 13 Um they really are different. It's not easy to make them align with each other. Romans 13 sees power flowing down from God through um, structures like families and states and other institutions to people who are supposed to be subject. Democratic theory sees power flowing up from people who decide you know, social contract theory, right? Mm -hmm. Who decide to give away some of their natural liberty in order to build state structures, uh, to bring order and advance the common good. Um, so, so, uh, power flows up to the, to the officials who can be removed at any time, uh, by the people who they are supposed to be serving. So, the idea that a government leader is a public servant who emerges from the people and can always be recalled by the people is a much more democratic idea than the idea that a governing official is God's servant who is imposed, you might say, by God on the people who are supposed to submit unless there's some kind of emergency extreme. And then you might have to have some rebellion, right? Um, so and and the latter not, not always being part of the theory. So... Uh, it's, you know, the best I can make of that difference is, I mean, at least with, with Revelation 13, we, we are reminded of how evil the state can get and how, how it must always be checked. It must always be, uh, carefully 
monitored and limited, every institution of, of power needs oversight. I really like the checks and balances of the, of the American system because of that, right? Um, and, but the basic idea that, that we do need structures of governance, we need people who make decisions, who, who uh, are effective in their role, who are competent, who care about those they serve, uh, who have a deep sense of accountability, um, who, who are humble, but who know how to lead. I think that's needed at every area of human life. And so good governance avoids either anarchy or tyranny. Um, and in, in every structure of human life, we need good governance. That I think is at least one place to start. And I believe that American Christians need a recommitment to what we have learned about that the best form of government is is democratic in the sense that human nature, both its potential and its uh, weakness, is best accounted for in a democratic system. I think it was Reinhold Niebuhr who said, basically, human capacity and potential makes democracy possible, and human sinfulness makes democracy necessary. Hmm. Um, We have the potential, the capacity to govern ourselves. But we also have the sinfulness that means that whoever is in a position of authority needs somebody looking over their shoulder and telling them, nah, that you've gone, you've gone too far. You've crossed the line. And in a democratic society, for example, with a president, you're supposed to have media, legislative branch, judicial branch, various kinds of public interest organizations and so on, all of whom are checking the power of the executive. And that would be true with other branches as well. You know, the Senate and the House check each other, et cetera. You know how it works. Right. So, so where does where does authority lie? If you think I've never thought about Romans 13 as becoming more problematic when we move away from a, a monarch. Um, where do we? Yeah, f- yeah. yeah I, this is that makes it a lot trickier. Where do we put if a if power comes from the base, if power comes from the people, where do we put the authority? In the, well, I guess here we'd go to that idea of what Paul is talking about is the principle of governance. Right. And and there can maybe be a meeting place there, Jeremy, you know, um, because if whether or not you understand say, the governor of the state of Georgia. Okay, let's just go with that for today. Brian Kemp. Hello, Brian. How you doing, brother? All right. So whether you see him as placed in his office by God or as placed in his office just barely by a bare majority of the people who voted in the state of Georgia, whose votes were counted in November of 2020, or never, no, 2018 it was. Mm-hmm. 2018. Um, however, we theologize is why Brian Kemp is in the chair of governor in the state capitol in Atlanta today. Um, it is still the case that Romans 13 tells us something about what Brian Kemp is supposed to be doing. He is supposed to be governing for the common good, deterring evil, uh, and advancing the good of the citizenry that um, he serves. And 
if Brian Kemp is a Christian, which I believe he is, um, he should be thinking of himself as accountable both to the people of the state of Georgia and to God. So it may be possible to think of this as a both and. Hmm. I like both ands. Yeah, I do too. Um, in a, in a sense, in a democracy, whoever elected us is who we are responsible to. But if we think from a theological frame and you think of the awesome responsibilities of everybody in authority, I kind of like the idea that at least some of these people wake up in the morning and they pray and they say, God, I know you are holding me accountable for what I do in my position today. Please help me to govern responsibly. So maybe once once we, in a democratic system, elect the governor, it's that office where the authority dwells. And so they slide into that role of the appointed for their time. For their time, it's the office. That's right. Um, and by the way, that's helpful to remember that the office is not the same as the person. The people rotate through the offices and they hold that power as delegated power, again, either by God or by the people or both, if you think of it compositely. Um, and, um, and they, they, uh, are accountable for that brief period in which they hold that responsibility. And then that it passes on to somebody else. Um, and, and that also would apply in any regime. Unless, of course, people begin to think of themselves as permanently in power and as accountable to no one. Um, and that, of course, is where you get your dictators and tyrants. And they are the they are the greatest threat, I think, in any community. People who forget the limits and the temporary temporariness and responsibilities of their position. That's a good word. That might be a good place to stop. We're at. 50 minutes. I think that sounds good, Jeremy. See, I, I wish that more churches had kind of substantive Bible studies about things like this, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, this would be a, this would have been a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning well spent, you know? I've got a dream of creating a, um, like a theology committee whose role it would be to, fight with these sorts of passages to meet maybe as infrequently as quarterly to wrestle with the most difficult sections so that when the church has a moment of conflict that we have someone that's done some of the work that we can call on from inside of our community um last thought today that is absolutely important and you know because in general Many of our churches are not theologizing churches, are not serious, you might say, serious Bible reading churches. You know, having Sunday school lesson for 10 minutes around coffee and prayer requests is not the same thing as being a serious Bible reading church. Right. right. Um, then we rarely are ready for those moments in which serious scriptural study and theological reflection is needed. We're not ready. Yeah, someone's got to be in the gym other than the pastor to be ready to do the heavy lifting of real theological grappling. And because we're not ready and we're not in the gym, then like when churches have to face an issue, like uh, LGBTQ inclusion or something, a lot of times they collapse into chaos and acrimony and just because they don't have anybody prepared to have the conversation.
But that could be true about any number of other issues too. You know, when the protesters are out in the street, Black Lives Matter protesters outside your church and you're trying to figure out what to do, that can't be the day that you, you just start having conversations about what the Bible says about race and right. human difference and stuff, you know? I mean, you have to have been doing it earlier. So, um, so this is again a call for the theological reflection role of the church as a community. It's a task that must be ongoing. It can't just be done by the leaders and it can't just be done in Christ. There you go. All right. Well, thank you, David. Thank you, Jeremy. Love doing these with you. Good conversations, my friend. Absolutely. This is, this is always a highlight for me. And uh, I'm excited to get this one out. If you would like to go and listen to the electionary discussion that we mentioned, it is available on both the Kingdom Ethics Facebook page and the uh, David P. Gushy Public Figure Facebook page, as well as at Vote Common Good. Uh, you can Google them and find their content all over the place. And, and I recommend you do. They're worth uh, engaging. So thank you, friends, and uh, we'll see you soon.